Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. brought to you by the Dream Readers. Tonight, we'll read another story from our King Arthur series. This one, The Crowning of Arthur and the Sword Excalibur, comes from a book edited by Rupert S. Holland and published in 1919. If you'd like to listen to this whole anthology, go to snoozecast.com series. Excalibur is the legendary sword of King Arthur, sometimes also attributed with magical powers or associated with the rightful sovereignty of Britain. Excalibur and the sword in the stone, the proof of Arthur's lineage, are in some versions said to be different, though in other incarnations they are either the same or at least share their name. Historically, a sword identified as Excalibur, or rather, Caliburn at the time, was supposedly discovered during the purported exhumation of Arthur's grave at Glastonbury Abbey in the year 1191. That same year, either this or another sword claimed as Excalibur was given as a gift of goodwill by the English king Richard I of England to his ally, the king of Sicily. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, 
take a few deep breaths. Now Arthur the Prince had all this time been nourished in Sir Ector's house as his own son, and was fair and tall and comely, being of the age of fifteen years, great in strength, gentle in manner, and accomplished in all exercises proper for the training of a knight. But as yet he knew not of his father, for Merlin had so dealt that none save Uther and himself knew aught about him. Wherefore it befell that many of the knights and barons who heard King Uther speak before his death and call his son Arthur his successor were in great amazement, and some doubted, and others were displeased. Anon the chief lords and princes set forth each to his own land, and, raising armed men and multitudes of followers, determined every one to gain the crown for himself, for they said in their hearts, If there be any such a son at all as he of whom this wizard forced the king to speak, who are we that a beardless boy should have rule over us? So, The land stood long with every lord and baron seeking but his own advantage, and the Saxons, growing ever more adventurous, wasted and overran the towns and villages in every part. Then Merlin went to Bryce, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and advised him to require all the earls and barons of the realm and all knights and gentlemen-at-arms to come to him at London before Christmas, that they might learn the will of heaven, who should be king. Upon Christmas Eve were met together in London all the greatest princes, lords, and barons, and long before day they prayed in St. Paul's Church, and the archbishop besought heaven for a sign who should be lawful king of all the realm. And as they prayed, there was seen in the churchyard, set straight before the doorways of the church, a huge square stone having a naked sword stuck in the midst of it, and on the sword was written in letters of gold, Whoso pulleth out the sword from this stone is born the rightful king of England. At this, all the people wondered greatly, and when mass was over, the nobles, knights, and princes ran out eagerly from the church to see the stone and sword, and a law was forthwith made that whoso should pull out the sword should be acknowledged straightway King of Britain. Then many knights and barons pulled at the sword with all their might, 
and some of them tried many times, but none could stir or move it. When all had tried in vain, the archbishop declared the man whom heaven had chosen was not yet there. But God, said he, will doubtless make him known ere many days. So ten knights were chosen, being men of high renown, to watch and keep the sword. And there was proclamation made through all the land that whosoever would had liberty and leave to try and pull it from the stone. But though great multitudes of people came, both gentle and simple, for many days no man could ever move the sword a hair's breadth from its place. Now, at the New Year's Eve, a great tournament was to be held in London, which the archbishop had devised to keep together lords and commons, lest they should grow estranged in the troublous and unsettled times. To the which tournament there came, with many other knights, Sir Ector, Arthur's foster father, who had great possessions near to London, and with him came his son, Sir Key, but recently made knight, to take his part in the jousting, and young Arthur also to witness all the sports and fighting. But as they rode towards the jousts, Sir Key found suddenly he had no sword, for he had left it at his father's house. And, turning to young Arthur, he prayed him to ride back and fetch it for him. I will with a good will, said Arthur, and rode fast back after the sword. But when he came to the house, he found it locked and empty, for all were gone forth to see the tournament. Whereat, being angry and impatient, he said within himself, I will ride to the churchyard and take with me the sword that sticketh in the stone, for my brother shall not go without a sword this day. So he rode and came to the churchyard, and, alighting from his horse, he tied him to the gate and went to the pavilion, which was pitched near the stone, wherein abode the ten knights who watched and kept it. But he found no knights there, for all were gone to see the jousting. Then he took the sword by its handle, and lightly and fiercely he pulled it out of the stone and took his horse and rode until he came to Sir Key and delivered him the sword. But as soon as Sir Key saw it, he knew well it was the sword of the stone, and, riding swiftly to his father, he cried out, 
Lo, here, sir, is the sword of the stone, wherefore it is I who must be king of all this land. When Sir Ector saw the sword, he turned back straight with Arthur and Sir Key and came to the churchyard, and there alighting, they went all three into the church, and Sir Key was sworn to tell truly how he came by the sword. Then he confessed it was his brother Arthur who had brought it to him. Whereat Sir Ector, turning to young Arthur, asked him, How gottest thou the sword? Sir, said he, I will tell you. When I went home to fetch my brother's sword, I found nobody to deliver it to me, for all were abroad to the jousts. Yet was I loath to leave my brother swordless, and, bethinking me of this one, I came hither eagerly to fetch it for him, and pulled it out of the stone without any pain. Then said Sir Ector, much amazed and looking steadfastly on Arthur, If this indeed be thus, tis thou who shalt be king of all this land, and God will have it so, for none but he who should be rightful lord of Britain might ever draw this sword forth from that stone. But let me now with mine own eyes see thee put back the sword into its place and draw it forth again. That is no mastery, said Arthur, and straightway set it in the stone. And then Sir Ector pulled at it himself, and after him Sir Key with all his might, but both of them in vain. And then Arthur, reaching forth his hand and grasping at the pommel, pulled it out easily and at once. Then fell Sir Ector down upon his knees upon the ground before young Arthur, and Sir Key also with him, and straightway did him homage as their sovereign lord. But Arthur cried aloud, Alas, mine own dear father and my brother, why kneel ye thus to me? Nay, my lord Arthur, answered then Sir Ector, we are of no blood kinship with thee, and little though I thought how high thy kin might be, yet wast thou never more than foster child of mine. And then he told him all he knew about his infancy and how a stranger had delivered him with a great sum of gold into his hands to be brought up and nourished as his own born child, and then had disappeared. But when young Arthur heard of it, he fell upon Sir Ector's neck and wept and made great lamentation. For now, said he, I have in one day lost my father and my mother and my brother. Sir, said Sir Ector presently, 
when thou shalt be made king, be good and gracious unto me and mine. If not, said Arthur, I were no true man's son at all, for thou art he in all the world to whom I owe the most, and my good lady and mother, thy wife, hath ever kept and fostered me as though I were her own. So if it be God's will that I be king hereafter as thou sayest, desire of me whatever thing thou wilt and I shall do it, and God forbid that I should fail thee in it. I will but pray, replied Sir Ector, that thou will make my son Serki, thy foster brother, Seneschal of all the lands. That shall he be, said Arthur, and never shall another hold that office, save thy son, while he and I do live. Anon, they left the church and went to the archbishop to tell him that the sword had been achieved. And when he saw the sword in Arthur's hand, he set a day and summoned all the princes, knights, and barons to meet again at St. Paul's Church and see the will of heaven signified. So, when they came together, the sword was put back in the stone and all tried from the greatest to the least, to move it. But there before them all not one could take it, save Arthur only. But then befell a great confusion and dispute, for some cried out, It was the will of heaven, and long live King Arthur. But many more, were full of wrath and said, What? Would ye give the ancient scepter of this land unto a boy born none know how? And the contention growing greatly, till nothing could be done to pacify their rage, the meeting was at length broken up by the archbishop and adjourned till Candlemas when all should meet again. But when Candlemas was come, Arthur alone again pulled forth the sword, though more than ever came to win it. And the barons, sorely vexed and angry, put it in delay till Easter. But... As he had sped before, so he did at Easter, and the barons yet once more contrived delays till Pentecost. But now the archbishop, fully seeing God's will, called together by Merlin's council, a band of knights and gentlemen at arms, and set them about Arthur to keep him safely till the feast of Pentecost. And when, at the feast, Arthur still again alone prevailed to move the sword, 
the people all with one accord cried out, Long live King Arthur! We will have no more delay, nor any other king, for so it is God's will, and we will also slay whoso resisteth him and Arthur. And wherewithal they kneeled down all at once, and cried for Arthur's grace and pardon that they had so long delayed him from his crown. Then he full sweetly and majestically pardoned them, and taking in his hand the sword, he offered it upon the high altar of the church. Anon was he solemnly knighted with great pomp by the most famous knight there present, and the crown was placed upon his head, and, having taken oath to all the people, lords and commons, to be true king and deal in justice only unto his life's end, he received homage and service from all the barons who held lands and castles from the crown. Meanwhile, those knights and barons who had so long delayed him from the crown met together and went up to the coronation feast at Carleon as if to do him homage and there they ate and drank such things as were set before them at the royal banquet, sitting with the others in the great hall. But when, after the banquet, Arthur began, according to the ancient royal custom, to bestow great boons and fiefs on whom he would, they all with one accord rose up and scornfully refused his gifts, crying that they would take nothing from a beardless boy come of low or unknown birth, but would instead give him good gifts of hard sword strokes between neck and shoulders. Whereat arose a tumult in the hall, and every man there made him ready to fight. But Arthur leapt up as a flame of fire against them, and all his knights and barons drawing their swords rushed after him upon them and began a full sore battle. And presently the king's party prevailed and drave the rebels from the hall and from the city, closing the gates behind them. And King Arthur brake his sword upon them in his eagerness. But amongst them were six kings of great renown and might, who more than all raged against Arthur and determined to destroy him, namely, King Lot, King Nantes, 
King Urien, King Carados, King Eder, and King Anguissant. These six, therefore, joining their armies together, laid close siege to the city of Carleon, wherefrom King Arthur had so shamefully driven them. And after fifteen days thus, Merlin came suddenly into their camp and asked them what this treason meant. Then he declared to them that Arthur was no base adventurer, but King Uther's son, whom they were bound to serve and honor, even though heaven had not vouchsafed the wondrous miracle of the sword. Some of the kings, when they heard Merlin speak thus, marveled and believed him. But others, as King Lot, laughed him and his words to scorn and mocked him for a conjurer and wizard. But it was agreed with Merlin that Arthur should come forth and speak with the kings. So he went forth to them to the city gate, and with him the archbishop and Merlin, and Sir Key, Sir Brastias, and a great company of others. And he spared them not in his speech, but spoke to them as king and chieftain, telling them plainly he would make them all bow to him if he lived, unless they chose to do him homage there and then. And so they parted in great wrath, and each side armed in haste. What will ye do? said Merlin to the kings. Ye had best hold your hands, for were ye ten times as many, ye shall not prevail. Shall we be afraid of a dream reader? Quoth King Lot in scorn. With that, Merlin vanished away and came to King Arthur. Then Arthur said to Merlin, I have need now of a sword that shall chastise these rebels terribly. Come then with me, said Merlin, for hard by there is a sword that I can gain for thee. So, they rode out that night till they came to a fair and broad lake. And in the midst of it, King Arthur saw an arm thrust up, clothed in white, and holding a great sword in the hand. Lo, Yonder is the sword I spoke of, said Merlin. 
Then saw they a damsel floating on the lake in the moonlight. What damsel is that? said the king. The lady of the lake, said Merlin. For upon this lake there is a rock. And on the rock a noble palace where she abideth. And she will come towards thee presently, when thou shalt ask her courteously for the sword. Therewith the damsel came to King Arthur and saluted him. And he saluted her and said, Lady, What sword is that the arm holdeth above the water? I would that it were mine, for I have no sword. Sir King, said the Lady of the Lake, that sword is mine, and if thou wilt give me in return a gift whenever I shall ask it of thee, Thou shalt have it. By my name, said he, I will give thee any gift that thou shalt ask. Well, said the damsel, go into yonder barge and row thyself unto the sword and take it and the scabbard with thee and I will ask my gift of thee when I see my time. So King Arthur and Merlin alighted and tied their horses to two trees and went into the barge. And when they came to the sword that the hand held, King Arthur took it by the handle and bore it with him. And the arm and hand went down under the water. And so they came back to land and rode again to Carleon. On the morrow, Merlin bade King Arthur to set fiercely on the enemy. And in the meanwhile, three hundred good knights went over to King Arthur from the rebel's side. Then, at the spring of day, when they had scarce left their tents, he fell on them with might and main. And Sir Badwain, Sir Key, and Sir Brastias slew on the right and on the left marvelously. And ever in the thickest of the fight, King Arthur raged like a young lion and laid on with his sword and did wondrous deeds of arms 
to the joy and admiration of the knights and barons who beheld him. King Arthur saw the fury of the enemy. He raged like a mad lion and stirred and drove his horse now here, now there, to the right hand and to the left. And while the noise and shouting were at their greatest, suddenly there came down through the battle Merlin the wizard upon a great black horse. And riding to King Arthur, he cried out, Alas, my lord, will ye have never done? Yonder king shall not be altogether overthrown this time. But if ye fall upon them any more, the fortune of this day will turn and go to them. Withdraw, Lord, therefore, to thy lodging, and there now take thy rest, for today thou hast won a great victory and overcome the noblest chivalry of all the world. And now for many years those kings shall not disturb thee. Therefore, I tell thee, Fear them no more, for now they are sore beaten and have nothing left them but their honor. And why shouldest thou slay them to take that? Then said King Arthur, Thou sayest well, and I will take thy counsel. With that he cried out, Ho, oh, for the battle to cease, and sent forth heralds through the field to stay more fighting. And gathering all the spoil, he gave it not amongst his own host, but to kings, ban, and boars, and all their knights and men at arms, that he might treat them with the greater courtesy as strangers. Then Merlin took his leave of Arthur and the two other kings and went to see his master, Blaise, a holy hermit, dwelling in Northumberland, who had nourished him through all his youth. And Blaise was passing glad to see him, for there was a great love ever between them. And Merlin told him how King Arthur had sped in the battle, and how it had ended and told him the names of every king and knight of worship who was there. 
So Blaze wrote down the battle, word for word, as Merlin told him. And in the same way, ever after, all the battles of King Arthur's days, Merlin caused Blaze, his master, to record.